This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Fidelity, financial planning that moves with your life. Learn more at fidelity.com slash your goals. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSC SIPC. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah, yeah. Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, October 10th. Today, how U.S. businesses are walking a fine line on China, why sex work is getting more dangerous, and the rise of anti-Semitism in Germany. It started with a tweet by Houston Rockets general manager Daryl Morey, who sparked a big backlash by tweeting on Friday, fight for freedom, stand with Hong Kong, in reference to these long-running protests that have become a huge problem for Beijing. Gene Whalen covers business for The Post. That created a big backlash among Chinese consumers who called out Maury and the Houston Rockets, how dare you, how dare you insult China in this way. I saw a video of somebody who was ripping up tickets and I think singing the Chinese national anthem. There have been a lot of of images and video clips like that appearing online, yes. And I think that that rattled the NBA. And so then Maury had to delete his tweet. And then the NBA commissioner, Adam Silver, had to basically say something about it. We are not apologizing for Daryl exercising his freedom of expression. I regret, again, having... He sort of expressed support for China, but ultimately said, we can't stop people from from tweeting critical things about China because we believe in free speech. That's right. And the NBA had to make a series of statements over the course of a few days attempting to really balance between the U.S. and Chinese side here. They were in a difficult uh, position, not wanting to offend China further, but also not wanting to completely kowtow and make people in the U.S. angry about being seen to not support free speech. At a certain point, James Harden, who is a player on the Houston Rockets, even responded. Uh, yeah, we apologize. Um, you, know, you know, we love China. We love, you know, playing there. Uh, and of course, this is more notable because it's the Houston Rockets, right? Yao Ming used to play for them, and so they have a big fandom in China. That's right. It, they and many other NBA teams have very large followings in China now. Some players go there to market their sneakers and to market jerseys specifically designed for the Chinese market. China's 1.4 billion people are a huge and growing market for the NBA and many other professional sport leagues. And this hasn't just been a problem for the NBA, right? There are other companies that have had issues with coming off as if they're being critical of China or doing something that in some way slightly offends China. That's right. It's been a long-running issue that has gotten worse since the Hong Kong protests took off. But certainly it has been going on for a long time. And what are some of the incidents that we've seen more recently with companies that have gotten into trouble? So recently, most of the cases have involved Hong Kong. And uh, in fact, just this week, Tiffany, the jewelry company, which gets a, a very large part of its revenue growth from China, from mainland China, took down an ad, an advertising image that Chinese consumers thought supported the Hong Kong protesters. And this was just like a regular ad for like, 
Rings, right? It was a regular ad for rings, and it was shot in a very arty way where a young woman wearing various Tiffany rings was holding her hand over her right eye. And it, it, Tiffany says, you know, look, this was just, a, you know, an arty image we shot. It didn't have anything to do with the Hong Kong protests. But it, it turns out that one of the Hong Kong protesters was shot in the eye by a projectile in recent months and became, you know, a huge um, figure in the Hong Kong movement, uh, kind of a, 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 there was a lot of sympathy for her. And and mainland Chinese thought that Tiffany was supporting that shot protester by having this image of a woman holding her hand over her eye. Why is it that companies are so willing to kind of pander to Chinese officials when it comes to breaking into the Chinese market. It seems like in a lot of different ways they have to compromise on some of their standards, some of their objectives when it comes to trying to do business in China. That that is absolutely true, and it goes way beyond issues of free speech and supporting democracy. U.S. and Western companies for years have complained that in order to gain access to the Chinese market, in order to gain permission to sell their uh, chips and their software and their products in China— They have had to hand over some of their intellectual property, some of their technology to Chinese partners. That's one of the main complaints that the U.S. has had in the current trade dispute with China. Look, you know, you're not you're not playing fair. You're forcing us to hand over our trade secrets in order to sell in your country. And that's not something that we require of Chinese companies if they want to sell in the U.S. We just open our doors and say, hey, come on in. That that has been the U.S. argument anyway. For many years, Western companies have had to make big sacrifices, big compromises to access China. And now we're seeing increasingly they're having to make compromises about these issues of, you know, speech and and democracy. And I don't think anyone believes that companies exist in order to promote free speech and democracy, right? They're They're ultimately about making money. But I suppose they need to be careful because they also have Western consumers to think of. And people in the U.S., don't like the idea of a Western company kowtowing to China. But I also wonder if there will be a point that there is going to be a moment where they have to decide who they're more willing to sacrifice. I think think you're right. I think that's true. It's becoming an increasingly acute issue for companies. And, And it's becoming a big issue for companies in all sorts of ways, choosing between the U.S. and China. You know, we've seen the Trump administration pursue this trade war with China and say, look, China, you're not playing fair. You're not you're not you're not doing right by Western companies, and Western companies have been caught in the middle. They've, in many ways, agreed with the Trump administration that China has been unfair, that treated them unfairly. But they also don't want to alienate the Chinese authorities because they don't want to suddenly have health inspectors or fire inspectors showing up to their factories and shops in Beijing. They're they're caught in the middle somewhat, and they they do definitely need to balance these two superpowers. And of course, this isn't just an issue for companies that are trying to do business in China or market to Chinese consumers, right? There are a lot of American companies that have to partner with Chinese companies to provide their basic products, that they use Chinese manufacturers, Chinese factories. What do they have to say in these kinds of situations? Absolutely. And this has become a huge problem for them. So much of our manufacturing now does happen in China. Companies like Apple manufacture most of their products in China. Companies like Walmart acquire many of the goods that they sell in their stores from China. And they've had to also think about 
how much do we want to continue relying on China to be our factory floor if our two countries are really headed more and more toward a permanent trade conflict? And some have considered moving manufacturing elsewhere. Some, bit by bit, have started to move manufacturing elsewhere. But largely, they are they are sticking with China for the moment because we are so in, entwined in the Chinese manufacturing system. It puts them in a, in a big bind. Jean, thank you so much. You're welcome. Jean Whalen is a business reporter for The Post. But did they talk to you about the safety tips? Yes, they sure did. And that day she's and all. All right, good deal. All right. All right, we're going to let you free then. <laughs> but that's my card. If you need anything, I it. call me. Okay. All right, baby. All right. Tamika Spellman works with this advocacy group, HIPS, which supports sex workers in D.C. And every Friday night, she goes out in her Lincoln sedan and brings along a bag of condoms and a stack of business cards, sometimes some extra candy, and uh, cranks up the Nicki Minaj and Beyonce on the radio and drives around D.C. looking for sex workers that need her help. She's done these rides for a long time, but she's started doing them every weekend ever since two transgender women died within months in D.C., She goes down the same route every time, West Virginia Avenue, K Street, Eastern Avenue, and she does it again, and sometimes will stay out as late as four or five in the morning if she has to. Tamika knows these women better than most because she used to be one of them. She is a transgender woman, and she used to be a sex worker, and now she's an advocate, but she's still deeply connected to this community, and she's she's tired of seeing members of her own community being killed on the streets for doing this work that's become increasingly dangerous. I'm Samantha Schmidt, and I write about gender and family issues for The Washington Post. Across the country, we're seeing that violence against transgender people, particularly transgender women of color, has become a crisis. The American Medical Association actually recently called it an epidemic. Trans women, particularly trans women of color, are very vulnerable and often are particularly prone to homelessness and trouble finding work and a number of issues that might lead them to sex work for survival. And Tamika knows this because she's experienced it. And so she feels particularly responsible for protecting members of her own community. I've been talking to these advocates for a while now with this group called HIPS, which is a sex worker advocacy group here in D.C. And one of the uh, employees there is named Tamika Spellman, and she said she'd been going on drives every weekend to go check in on girls. And I asked her if I could go along with her one night just to kind of get a sense of what it was like out there and, you know, what she was doing to try to keep her community safe. And she said, sure. And so what was it like going out with her for the night? She picked me up outside my apartment at 11 p.m. And she was with Amalea Talerico, who's another sex worker advocate, particularly focused on the transgender sex worker community. And they went through this loop that they go on every single time where a lot of these really horrible incidents have been happening lately. And what are those conversations like that they have with sex workers as they're making this loop? What do they talk about? What do they tell them? What really struck me was how 
they knew so many of these women that it was just like catching up with old friends in many ways. It was like we would pull up to a sidewalk, we'd be driving around, and Emilea would just roll down the window and say, Y'all need condoms? Okay. Yes, ma'am, we need them. We need them. Thank you. Have a nice mm-hmm. day. You too. <laughs> she would uh, call out to you know women that she'd see in the the sidewalks, and a lot of them would be like, "Oh yeah, we saw her at Walmart last weekend," or "Oh yeah, that's so and so." Like, we I wonder how she's doing tonight. And then if it was someone that they didn't know very well, Tamika would start by saying, "Like, I'm just trying to keep you girls safe. Like, I want to hear like what's been going on." I've been killed, and I just want to make sure you out here being safe. Sure. I will. All right. Thank you, dear. They also are out there to try to kind of keep their ears to the ground because they heard the night that I was out, they'd heard rumors that like somebody was out like threatening girls. And so they wanted to kind of get a sense of like what girls are hearing, what they're experiencing. I'll be wanting y'all to like maybe work in twos. If you go somewhere with somebody you're not sure about, try to try to take a picture of their tag. And of course, if y'all see them folks with them damn paintballs, try to get a description of them. If you can, and like also just kind of reminding them, you know, here's a phone number you can call if you get into any trouble. If you are in a tricky situation, call me here. I'll be up. I can come get you. My phone number, I mean, if something, something does happen, call me. All right? All right, baby. And I think that it's just also a peace of mind thing for them, uh, knowing that that they can kind of be out there checking in on their own community. It gives them, I think, a sense of control over a situation that in so many ways is out of their control. So why are there these new and more urgent concerns about the safety of sex workers here in D.C.? So generally across the country, there's been a lot of concern about transgender women of color that have been killed at really troubling rates, Uh, been at least 18 so far this year. All of those cases are very different But there have been two that happened here in D.C., just within months of each other and within blocks of each other, just outside of D.C. in Prince George's County. And both of these women were transgender women of color, and both of them had, at different points in their life, been sex workers. And so this not only you know, raised a lot of concerns about the safety of trans women, but it also raised concerns about the safety of sex workers. A lot of women have told me that they have been robbed at gunpoint there. As we were driving around, Emily even said, you know, this is the beat where dates go to kill girls. The authorities in both those cases were telling me they weren't targeted for being trans, but it shed light on this really dangerous profession that in some ways has gotten even more dangerous in recent months. And about a year and a half ago, these two federal measures were passed on a bipartisan basis intended to curb illegal sex trafficking. And I feel like I remember hearing about this. It was it was basically they you weren't allowed to post ads about prostitution on Craigslist, right? Yeah. And it basically caused both Craigslist Personal and Backpage to close. And Initially, you know, it was a bipartisan effort to, you know, to try to keep women safe and to try to protect victims of sex trafficking. Because in theory, it would just make it more difficult for for sex work to happen or for sex trafficking to happen. Exactly. But an unintended consequence was that a lot of these sex workers now were forced onto the streets to find work because they were still equally desperate to find that work, and they no longer had their kind of digital safety net to rely on. Because before Craigslist and Backpage, there was a space where sex workers could be in control. They could vet their clients before they went on a date. They could set a price and negotiate and and just be more assured that the 
the situation they were getting themselves into was one they were comfortable with. They felt like they were in more control than if they were to get into a stranger's car off the street. And there would be a paper trail of that interaction, right? Like you would have communicated with someone in advance. And so if something happened to you, people would would theoretically know where to look to find the person who you'd set up a date with. Potentially. And that was actually part of why some investigators actually liked working with Craigslist and Backpage. Not that they liked having to, to go down that route, but that was in some ways easier than the current situation because they could rely on Backpage and Craigslist to pass along like records. Uh, both of them were a lot more compliant with subpoenas than other websites. More and more girls are going out onto the streets and putting themselves in really dangerous situations. And actually, HIPS, this organization that Tamika works for, said that they've seen at least three times more women on the streets now than they had wow. seen before. So if there is a sense that now doing this kind of work is way more dangerous than it used to be, and it seems that way considering the number of trans women who have been victims in the last year or so, what is a potential solution or what are people trying to do to get a handle on this problem? So there's actually a decriminalization bill that is gaining some steam here in D.C., which would make D.C. one of the first jurisdictions in the country to decriminalize prostitution, with the exception of some parts of Nevada. And Councilmember Grasso has been at the forefront of this, and he feels that, you know, by decriminalizing sex work, it will, you know, make it safer for the people who do rely on it. And, you know, there's a lot of advocacy around it right now, and while it was introduced previously, this time it seems to be gaining a bit more momentum. But it's controversial because opponents say that it would actually put more women at risk of exploitation and abuse. And, of course, some people are worried that it would turn the nation's capital into a red light district. And around the country, are there similar conversations that are being had about whether sex work should actually be a criminal offense? I think there is a lot of momentum around this issue in ways that we haven't seen before. Even just the fact that we're talking about this as sex work and not as prostitution, I think, is a big step. And, you know, actually with FOSTA and SESTA, I think that has actually galvanized a lot of sex worker rights activists to really kind of shed light on this issue. And, you know, amid kind of the Me Too movement and a lot of these other conversations about female empowerment, I think sex worker rights has been a part of that. But it still remains very controversial, of course, and even among people who who do think that that there should be fewer restrictions on this, it's still a touchy subject. I also feel like the way that you see the legal process trying to navigate what to do with sex work, how to make sex work safer, but then having those pieces of legislation potentially backfire, that that speaks to the fact that we're in this moment where we're kind of caught between two ways of thinking about sex work, because there are so many people who are victims of sex trafficking who are forced into becoming sex workers in a way that they didn't seek out to do. But then we're also at this moment where we're thinking more about sex work as bodily autonomy and about a thing that happens be- that can happen between two consenting adults. And because... People are still trying to navigate those two ways of thinking about this kind of work that we're stuck with pieces of legislation that don't really protect everybody. Right. And 
they're always going to be controversial. I mean, for the sex workers who are really pushing for decriminalization bills, for example, they don't think that that's going to be the total solution either. They think that so many other things also need to happen to prevent women from needing to seek out sex work. And and while, yes, they acknowledge that it is a choice, and for some women it is a choice, for other women it's not really a choice. And it's because they can't find housing, they cut, they don't have enough social services or security nets to, to help them. They don't have uh, services directly catering to the transgender community. And so I think that they're hoping for all of those other factors to be considered as well. And it's not just about, you know, whether it's legal or not. It's like, how can you protect them and help the women who are getting to a place where they need to rely on it in the first place? Transgender sex workers are are not willing to wait for a bill to pass or for officials to do something more. And they've really been at the forefront of advocating for their own community. They've been leading rallies. They've been putting together GoFundMe fundraisers. I feel like every week on Twitter, I'm seeing a new GoFundMe for another woman in their community who needs help, who needs rent, who needs support in some way. And so I think there's really been a lot of advocacy coming from within the community to protect their own. Sam, thank you so much. Thank you. Samantha Schmidt writes on gender and family issues for The Post. What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC, and brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And now, one more thing. I came to Halle this morning on Thursday and saw that about 100 people gathered outside that synagogue to mourn the victims. My name is Louisa Beck, and I'm a reporter for The Washington Post based in Berlin. Luisa took a train to the city of Halle in eastern Germany. On Wednesday, a gunman there killed two people outside of a synagogue. The synagogue was packed with about 80 people who were worshipping for Yom Kippur, the holiest Jewish holiday. He tried to get inside the synagogue, but a locked door kept him from entering. And so he shot a woman in the street and a man at a nearby kebab shop, and he injured two others. Like with another mass shooting at a mosque in New Zealand earlier this year, the gunman live-streamed the attack. On that recording, he talked about his motives. He denies the Holocaust and lists immigration and feminism as the world's problems, among many others. And in the video, he says the root of all these problems is the Jew. After a shootout and an attempted escape, police were able to capture the suspected gunman. German officials promised to increase security and crack down on far-right terrorism. And that was on the minds of a lot of the people who gathered outside the synagogue on Thursday. I spoke with two of the people who came. One was Igor Matvietz. Um, are you part of the synagogue here? Are you a community uh, member? Yes, I am. Yeah. 
He's 28 years old and lives in Halle. And he told me that he and others have long felt unsafe in Germany. Of course, we talk a lot about the security situation of Jewish people in Germany. But uh, I have to admit that even before yesterday, events of yesterday, I wouldn't uh, left my home with the kippah. I also spoke with a woman named Christina Feist outside of the synagogue. Do, do you forget, how big do you think the problem of anti-Semitism is in Germany right now? Huge. Right now? Like, it's been like this for a while. This is nothing new, frankly. I don't know why that question always comes up. It's nothing new. It's something we've been dealing with for years and decades. She said that far-right terrorism isn't just a problem for Jews, but it's a problem for Muslims and for anyone who's affected by xenophobia. Xenophobia is sort of okay now. I don't know why. I don't know when that happened. I don't know why it happened, and I don't know why it's still happening. It's not only a problem of anti-Semitism against Jewish people. This is also affecting Muslim people. We're all in the same boat. This is like playing xenophobia. That's all it is. And she thinks that to address this problem, we need a much larger societal change addresses xenophobia and hatred as a whole. Louisa Beck covers Germany for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. If you want to read more about the topics we covered on the show, check out our website. That's where we've got a full page for each episode with links to related stories. That's at postreports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC, and brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC.